Support for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by AstraZeneca, committed to providing targeted cancer medicines for patients. When it comes to cancer treatment, one size does not fit all. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. Welcome to Yale Cancer Answers with Drs. Anish Chagpar, Susan Higgins, and Stephen Gore. I'm Bruce Barber. Yale Cancer Answers is our way of providing you with the most up-to-date information on cancer care by welcoming oncologists and cancer specialists who are on the forefront of the battle to fight cancer. This week, Dr. Anish Chagpar welcomes Dr. David Rim. Dr. Chagpar is director of the Breast Center at Smilo Cancer Hospital, and Dr. Rim is professor of pathology and of medicine in medical oncology, director of pathology tissue services, and director of translational pathology at Yale School of Medicine. Here's Dr. Chagpar. So, David, let's start off by talking a little bit about biomarkers. What are they? We hear a lot about biomarkers yeah. But what really are they? That's a great question because biomarkers means different things to different people. And there's biomarkers are, are things that we can um, obtain from a patient. It might be an x-ray. It might be something in the blood. But in my specialty, it's something that we look at in the tissue. That is, after we take a little tiny piece of tissue, a biopsy, then we look at from biomarkers in the biopsy. And what a biomarker is, is it's an indication of the likelihood of a patient um, doing better or worse from the disease, that's called a prognostic biomarker, or responding or not responding to a drug. And those are the really important biomarkers because in this era of precision or personalized medicine, we want to make sure we're giving the right drugs to the right people. And it's the biomarker that's the key in that algorithm, the key sort of piece of that puzzle is to figure out which patient gets which drug, and the way you do that is with the biomarker. So so it's not like the same biomarkers show up in the same cancer all the time. That's exactly right. Every every cancer and every question, every drug has a different biomarker. And there's a few biomarkers that are common, and sometimes there's a biomarker that works in multiple cancers. But more commonly, the biomarkers are tightly linked to the biological process that's associated with <clears throat> with the drug. So a biomarker might be associated with um, a specific drug in more than one cancer, uh, even though it's the same drug that's being given in both of those cancers. So, but let, let's start off with how do we figure out what biomarkers even exist? Because, I mean, you can imagine that once you know what a biomarker is and where it is and what cancers it might be in, then some really smart scientist paired up with some really rich drug company goes and makes a drug to target that biomarker. But how do we figure out what biomarkers exist to begin with? So it's that's a great question. And let's start with your own specialty, breast cancer, because in breast cancer was really the pioneer area for tissue biomarkers. That is the kind of biomarkers where you measure something in the tumor itself. And for example, um, either estrogen receptor or HER2 are known biological pathways that are used in the course of the cancer's progression and the growth of the cancer. And so if we understand that a given molecule is important for the growth of the cancer, then that, can, that molecule can be the target for a drug. But that molecule doesn't exist in equal amounts in all cancers in all patients. And so measuring that molecule can tell us whether or not a patient's likely to respond to a drug that targets that molecule. And HER2 is perhaps one of the best examples in breast cancer. So, but how do we 
figure out that HER2 or estrogen receptor or any of the biomarkers were really expressed in a particular cancer? I mean, did people kind of look at a cancer and say, aha, there's a marker there? Well, so in the beginning, they get, the biomarkers aren't biomarkers. In the beginning, the protein that ultimately becomes the biomarker is just part of the the machine or part of the process of the cancer. And then as we learn about the cancers and we learn and we figure out what processes we want to target with the drugs, those same processes become something that we want to assess and that's what and then they become a biomarker because a biomarker is simply a biological way to determine what sort of classification the disease is, and that allows us to then say, oh, if it's this disease classification because it's expressing this protein, then it's likely to respond to this drug because this drug targets that protein. So essentially, we've known for a while the biology of how cells grow and that there are certain pathways that make them grow more than others, and cancer is essentially when these growth pathways go berserk, and they start growing in aberrant ways and proliferating without any of the usual regulatory signals. Is that kind of it? Exactly. And so, but if these regulatory pathways and these growth pathways and these signaling things exist in all cells, how come these biomarkers exist in some cancers but not in other cancers? So that's um, because not all cancers are the same. They're kind of like different animals in the zoo in some ways where, you know, there's a zebra cancer and there's a giraffe cancer and there's a, a dog cancer and they all have different, um, they're, they're all similar. They all have two eyes and a head and a nose and all that stuff, but they're all different in the way they look and the way they act and the way they behave in the patient. And so even though there's some things that are in common in all patients or all tumors, there's also many things that are different and those differences are often the target for a drug. And so in, in the breast cancer example, one of the differences is that HER2 target. That HER2 target's only present in 15% of breast cancers, as you know. So we have to figure out if that breast cancer is that particular type that's HER2 positive, and then we can give them a drug for that particular type that hits, that hits the HER2 targeted pathway. And that and the biomarker is the way we figure that out. We actually measure that. And, there's different ways to measure that. You can measure the protein or you can measure DNA amplification, and there are different approaches to it. But that, that molecule is the core of what a biomarker is. But we don't look at HER2 necessarily in lung cancer or in colon cancer, and yet HER2 is a, it's, 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 like it's got a growth pathway. Yeah, so how a, come how come the lung cancers don't have her two? Well, actually, they well do. they do. Some of them. <laughs> Sorry, two percent of lung cancers, not very many, but two percent of lung cancers actually overexpress her two either by amplification or some other mechanism. So actually, we're starting to look at that, and in fact, it looks like there may be a small percentage of colon cancers that do as well. And so the that sort of the essence of a biomarker is that the different um, tumors like a giraffe and an elephant use different pathways. They're different and they look different and they have um, different properties. And so you have to sort of figure out which of those properties are. There are some things in common. They both have tails. So if you had a tail-specific drug, it would work on both of those animals, but it wouldn't work on a snail, for example. And so that's the kind of thing that a biomarker is, is where you have to figure out whether you're 
your disease is using that specific pathway, and the biomarker is the mechanism for figuring out which pathway or which category of disease you have or which animal in the zoo example. And then once you know that, you can give the right drug. So, but historically, we used to treat, and I think this is still in large part true, although the paradigm may be changing, we used to treat the animals like animals. So we would treat breast cancer like breast cancer. There are certain certain drugs that work for breast cancer, certain certain pathways that we know are particularly expressed in breast cancer. So, for example, 80% express estrogen receptor and progesterone receptor. And then there are certain other drugs, completely different drugs, that work better in lung cancer uh, and other drugs that are better in colon cancer. And we used to treat these like like different phenotypes based on the cell of origin, kind of like the giraffe is different from the monkey is different than the zebra. Um, But is what you're saying that because all of these animals have tails and we may have a tail-targeted drug, that, that with these biomarkers, it may completely revolutionize the paradigm of how we treat cancer? And that, that's exactly what's happening. And it's not happening so much with HER2 because HER2 is only in 2% in, one in, in lung and maybe 1% in colon, even though it's 15% in breast. But there are other biomarkers, like uh, particularly some of the ones we're studying now, um, PDL1, which is an immune pathway biomarker, and that may be present in lung and in bladder and in melanoma and possibly in breast and possibly in uh, endometrial ovarian cancers. And so it's one of those biomarkers that may stretch across many cancers. And in fact, if that's true, then those drugs will also stretch across many cancers. And so, you know, when people get biopsies these days, the standard, we do standard kind of panels, right? So for the people who may be in the audience listening and who may have had or may know people who have had breast cancer, we always stain for ER and PR and HER2. It's kind of the standard panel because a lot of our therapies are based on that. Do you think that we're moving into an era where we're going to stain for a panel of things like PDL1 and KRAS and EGFR and VEGF because we may have we may have drugs for these That's exactly elements? what's happening and in fact it's happened in lung cancer already as standard as it is to do ER and PR and HER2 and breast cancer it's now that standard to look for EGFR mutations which is a DNA biomarker to look for uh, RAS and ALK translocations, which are DNA biomarkers. And now, every patient that comes in since June 1, we measure PDL1, which is a protein biomarker. And it's just so it's happening now. You know, breast was first, but now lung has followed along. And I think if, you know, we have this discussion five years from now, there might be 10 or 15 tumors where we have standard biomarkers that go with each tumor type. And do you think that th- that that panel, as costs come down, and we can talk a little bit about costs, but we've certainly seen the costs of tests and the costs of sequencing and costs of all kinds of things coming down with increasing technology and increasing knowledge, that, that maybe we would do that same panel on all cancers. Because even if HER2 is only expressed in 2% of lung cancer, if it is expressed and if those patients do have the t- kind of response that breast cancer patients have with dual-targeted HER2 therapies, that might be a good thing. Do you think that that's going to happen where we're going to have the standard biomarker panel and every cancer is going to get that and then we're going to look at the profile and say, well, let's pick the potpourri of drugs to give you? So I think that's happening too, in some, especially in some of the more advanced cancers, 
We're on every cancer now. Um, Zanta Walter and Nina Longtine, who are a director and, uh, and laboratory director in our molecular diagnostics lab, do a panel of 50 different genes on every cancer that comes in that sort of meets that criteria. Now, those are generally late-stage cancers, but they're looking for any possible mutation, and many of those are mutations that would be rare in that given cancer, but if they find that mutation, that gene alteration, then there's a drug that goes with it. And so that is, I believe, the future is sort of single tests like the 50-gene assay that can be an assay for many different drugs. There's about 25 or maybe as many as 30 different drugs that are associated with uh, specific genetic mutations that could be found by that assay. And so so is it that we... What 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 generally comes first, the the drug or or the the test uh, for the biomarker? So generally, the drug comes first, and actually, um, drug companies in some ways would rather not have a biomarker because if there's a biomarker, then they can't give their drug to everybody. Hmm. Biomarkers inherently limit the scope, or the uh, they they more carefully define the effectiveness of a drug. So if you have 100,000 patients and the biomarker says only 20% of those or 20,000 are going to respond to the drug, the drug company just sold a lot less drug. And they're not thrilled about that on one hand. On the other hand, they are happy that their drug is being used more effectively. And in fact, without that biomarker, their drug might not have gotten FDA approval because it was not sufficiently effective, whereas when they use it with the biomarker, then they have a very high response rate and the drug can get rapid approval. So it's a, it's a very careful balance that um, drug companies try to strike between the sensitivity of their marker and the specificity or the, the fact that their marker will or will not pick out the right patients. Great. Well, we're going to take a short break for a medical minute. Please stay tuned to learn more information uh, from my guest, Dr. David Rim. When we get back, we're going to talk more about immunotherapy. Stay tuned. Support for Yale Cancer Answers is provided by AstraZeneca, a global science-led biopharmaceutical business committed to bringing to market targeted oncology medicines that address unmet needs. More information at AstraZeneca-US.com. Breast cancer is the most common cancer in women. In Connecticut alone, approximately 3,000 women will be diagnosed with breast cancer this year and nearly 200,000 nationwide. But thanks to earlier detection, non-invasive treatments, and novel therapies, there are more options for patients to fight breast cancer than ever before. Women should schedule a baseline mammogram beginning at age 40 or earlier if they have risk factors associated with breast cancer. Digital breast tomosynthesis, or 3D mammography, is transforming breast screening by significantly reducing unnecessary procedures while picking up more cancers and eliminating some of the fear and anxiety many women experience. This has been a Medical Minute brought to you as a public service by Yale Cancer Center and Smilo Cancer Hospital at Yale New Haven. More information is available at YaleCancerCenter.org. Welcome back. This is Dr. Anise Chagpar, and I'm joined tonight by my guest, Dr. David Rim. We're talking about the use of biomarkers, particularly for lung cancer, but really for anything. And one of the things you said, David, right before the break, was you were talking about some of the biomarkers that are used in lung cancer, one of which is PDL1. And you mentioned that this could be a biomarker that potentially has utility in all kinds of cancers and is an immune marker. Now, we hear a lot about immune markers. Tell us more about what exactly that is. Okay, well, that's a 
really exciting new area in oncology is the fact that the patient's own immune system, all of our body's immune systems, have all the tools they need to basically kill any cancer. The problem is that the cancers sort of figure out a way around that immune system. And in fact, uh, most cancers are never diagnosed because they're destroyed by the patient's own immune system. And the ones that are ultimately diagnosed are the ones that get around it. So the question is, is there a way we can sort of rejigger the immune system to recognize those cancers that weren't recognized? And one of the key components of the immune system that shuts the immune system off so that it doesn't attack the body's normal cells is called PDL1. The PDL1 molecule is also known as a checkpoint molecule. And what it does is it tells the uh, immune system cells, one of the key cells in the immune system that uh, does the killing of tumors and other uh, cells that are, uh, that are not supposed to be there or infected by a, a pathogen, it tells them uh, to shut down. So the normal tissue, for example, when a, uh, in, the, in the course of a normal pregnancy, the placenta expresses PDL1 so that the mother's immune system doesn't destroy the placenta and the fetus. And so that's an example of how you need to have some way to turn the immune system off that's in, even in a normal hum, functioning human being. But somehow cancers figure out, oh, that's a good idea. And so the cancer starts expressing the same protein that's expressed in the placenta called PDL1, and that fools the immune system into thinking that, oh, this is just normal. We don't have to go and kill this, this funny looking organ that is the cancer. And so um, that, that's sort of a trick that the cancer uses, if you will. It evolves to that state where it can uh, then turn off the immune system. So recently, a number of different pharmaceutical companies have thought, hmm, if we can block that signaling of that uh, PDL1 molecule, maybe the immune system will turn back on and the cancer will then be killed by the patient's own immune system. And in fact, that works. And in fact, it works so well, it works better than any other chemotherapy drug in history so far. Hmm. Uh, p particularly in, uh, where it really first started was in melanoma, but now in lung cancer, we're seeing rates that are as high as 20 or 25 percent for long-term survival. And if you compare, and if you add two of the these immune checkpoint drugs together, we're seeing rates as high as 50 or 60 percent, maybe even 70 percent long-term survival, which is amazing for patients in a class that would have otherwise died of disease in six to nine months. So that's really interesting, but um, but if the immune system, so so, do all cancers express this PDL one? That's the problem. So um, not every cancer evolves that as its defense mechanism, and probably it's only somewhere between twenty and thirty percent of the cancers that actually use that pathway. There might be other checkpoints or other mechanisms of getting around immune, the immune system, and so. What we need is a biomarker to determine whether or not uh, that cancer is using that pathway. Now, we can give the drug to everybody and just hope for the best, but we we'll probably only see a response rate of 20 to 30 percent of lung cancer and maybe about the same in melanoma, and now it turns out maybe about the same in triple negative breast cancer and maybe about the same in gastric cancer and maybe about the same in head and neck cancer. They're all sort of between that 15 and 25 percent range. And, but they're all using that mechanism of PDL1 mediated checkpoint inhibition for that subset. So 
the the biomarker test that is to test for the presence of that PDL1 molecule suggests that if it's present, then those are the patients that are likely to respond to the drug. And in two very interesting recent trials in lung cancer, in one case, they did a, a, a study where they looked for the presence of a lot of that biomarker. And then if they found a lot of that biomarker, they put the patients on the study. And when they got on the study, they had a 40% response rate, which is pretty phenomenal in high-stage lung cancer. Another company, at the same time, put the patients on if they had just barely a sniff of it, that is, just 5% or more. And those patients didn't see any advantage. So, mm. in fact, that trial failed, and their drug is not approved in first-line, whereas the first company's drug is approved in first-line lung cancer. And so that's an example of how a biomarker properly selected helped the pharmaceutical company find the right patients for their drug. And now they have and have been selling, and you've probably seen their ads on TV, a very effective drug for lung cancer that can give as much as high as a 40% response rate in four, five, six, seven-year survival in patients who would have normally been, succumbed to the disease in less than a year. So, but that's only for the people mm -hmm. who have that biomarker, who have a lot of that biomarker. But what about the people who don't? How come their immune systems um, allow those other cancers to still exist, even though they don't have this PDL one? So that's a that's the ten billion dollar question, or sixty four thousand dollars in the old school. Um, is is you know what other pieces of the immune system can be blocked? And we're starting to see um, other other checkpoints that are out there that are candidates, other ways of activating immune system and, and deactivating the immune system are all candidate therapies that would be tried either individually or in combination. And there's literally um, hundreds of, if not thousands of different clinical trials now. I'd heard the number of 800 clinical trials of new checkpoint markers that are combined with the PDL1 inhibitor. So if the PDL1 gets 20%, if we combine it with biomarker X for drug target X, can we bump that number up to 40 or 50%? And those trials are underway for a very broad range of other molecules that have been already proven to play some role in the immune system's mechanisms for cell death. But the immune system is really, really complicated. And, and in fact, um, it's so complicated that we, even sitting here today, probably don't completely understand the whole thing, maybe only understand you know, 50 or 80 percent of what really goes on in terms of the immune system mechanisms. So as we learn more about the immune system, and there's lots of people working on the basic sciences and mechanisms of the immune system, we find more and more mechanisms by which cell killing and, and cell checkpoints can occur, and those then in, in, uh, become targets for therapy um, by new drug companies or old drug companies who are looking to enhance the what we've already found with PDL1. And so are there trials ongoing now that are looking at other checkpoints aside from PDL1 like you mentioned that there are combinations but if their tumor doesn't express PDL1 that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to give them a drug to PDL1 if they don't have it. Well so one example of that is a as a molecule called CTLA4. And there's a drug called ipilimumab that, that blocks CTLA-4. And CTLA-4 isn't expressed on the tumors, but it's a way of uh, preventing the activation of the T cells. And so it works in a different way, but it might actually result in increased numbers of T cells 
when it's inhibited, being present in the tumor. And so it's sort of a complicated uh, mix, but the, um, the thought is that the combination of this drug, this uh, another checkpoint inhibitor combined with PDL1 gives you um, a phenotype or gives a, a set of processes that increase the likelihood of PDL1 working. And so that's what's happened when they, and, and ipilimumab or anti-CTLA4 was actually the first immune checkpoint that was um, discovered and predates PDL1 mm-hmm. and was used in melanoma where they found uh, a small percentage, maybe about 10 or 15% of patients who would have died from their stage four melanoma were long, were alive six, eight, 10 years after that time. So they even went so far as to use that that small percentage of patients was cured by a single checkpoint, mm-hmm. but they needed to add something else. And so PDL1, which is also effective as a monotherapy in combination with anti-CTLA-4 is even more effective, and that's what we've seen now in, um, in many trials. And so that model is sort of being used in these 800-plus other trials where the idea is let's try some other checkpoint. Maybe it was effective in monotherapy or maybe it wasn't so effective in monotherapy, but let's combine it and see if we get some sort of synergistic effect uh, if we can get an effect that makes the PDL1 inhibitor more effective than it is by itself, or potentially is effective as a brand new checkpoint blocker. Um, we've been looking at there's the, the PDL1 um, checkpoint is a member of a family called the B7 family. And Li Ping Chen here at Yale is one of the uh, fathers of this whole field. And there's other B7 family members. There's one called PDL2 and one called B7H4 and B7H5 and B7H3. So those are all potential other checkpoints that could be targeted as drug as therapies. Now, it turns out some of them have already been checked and or tried in, in trials and they don't work so well. Others are showing promise, but it's still too early to tell whether or not those will be as effective as the uh, PDL1 um, biomarker. And then there's there's Still, still other ways of modulating the immune system via vaccine and other mechanisms that are also now um, reinvigorated because of the promise of the PDL1 and the the success of the PDL1 therapies. So, could it be that you know when we were talking before about the importance of biomarkers and really fixing the 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 target on that biomarker to be appropriate for therapy so that when you have a lot of PDL1 expressed then your inhibitor works really well when you have a little bit not so much could it be that um, that with a if you have a little bit of PDL1 expressed that that's the the point at which the CTL4 uh, would be most effective so that's that's a great question, and that's in fact what is one of the things going on in my lab now, is to ask questions. Can we can we characterize? Can we sort of invent biomarkers that aren't necessarily the drug targets, but tell us about the immune state of the patient? So are the T cells activated or are they dormant, and can that status of the immune cells help us understand? Um, the likelihood of another checkpoint molecule or some other drug working. And that's, I think that's a key um, future direction for immunotherapy is that understanding better how the immune system works and how we can sort of monitor that and, and measure that um, using different 
perhaps uh, biomarkers that aren't necessarily drug targets, but biomarkers for the immune status itself, mm -hmm. and then use those biomarkers to figure out which drugs will be appropriate at which times. So all of these therapies, I mean, it's great to think about all of these therapies that can get the immune system activated and targeting this cancer. And But one of the things that you mentioned was vaccines, which seems to me to be a really promising kind of maneuver because it could prevent cancers altogether. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, the vaccines that um, I'm aware of are not really cancer prevention vaccines. We think about, you know, a vaccine for rubella or for mumps or for some, you know, for um, hepatitis. Those are vaccines that prevent the disease entirely. Um, whereas the vaccines that we're studying now or that some people are um, working on now are more vaccines to combat a specific cancer. Mm -hmm. And in fact, the vaccine may even be highly specific to that cancer itself. That is, the vaccine might be designed to amplify or um, awaken cells to the fact that this particular cancer signature is present. And so they're making some vaccines from from signals from the cancer itself. They're a signal called a neoantigen that a cancer produces that stimulates the immune system. And so there's some vaccines, the vaccines that I think are most um, active in the immune system or in, in, in immuno-oncology aren't the preventive vaccines that we think of getting in childhood and preventing polio. These are vaccines that are disease-specific and design and, and, and they're personalized medicine type or precision medicine type vaccines that actually might be um, not preventive but curative of these specific immune-mediated uh, immune cancers. Dr. David Rim is Professor of Pathology and of Medicine in Medical Oncology, Director of Pathology Tissue Services, and Director of Translational Pathology at Yale School of Medicine. If you have questions, the address is canceranswers at yale.edu, and past editions of the program are available in both audio and written form at yalecancercenter.org. I'm Bruce Barber, reminding you to tune in each week to learn more about the fight against cancer here on WNPR, Connecticut's public media source for news and ideas.